Welcome back to the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. This is episode 102. I'm Rob Woods, and this is the show for anyone who works in fundraising and wants ideas and perhaps a dose of inspiration to help you raise more money and really enjoy your job. First of all, I'd like to say a huge and heartfelt thank you to everyone who's been sharing these episodes and getting in touch on LinkedIn and Twitter. I really appreciate your help in spreading the word. And this week, we're going to look again at such an important issue for charities, which is retention. I know that for many charities, finding and keeping great fundraisers is now as hard as it's ever been. So this week, I'm sharing the second half of my recent interview with the brilliant Paul Knott. Paul used to be a fundraising manager. He's also spent years in recruitment for our sector, and he now focuses most of his time working with charities to help them improve their ability to attract and retain great people. Last time in episode 101, Paul shared that although it is an almost universally accepted truth that many fundraisers change jobs every two years, that every charity struggles to keep their people, some charities do emphatically buck this trend. And the ones that do tend to approach culture and retention differently from others. He shared several examples and things that charities that are good at retention tend to do, including their mindset, ways they build trust, and how they help their people feel truly appreciated. In this, the second half of our conversation, he shares several more practical things that help, starting with how you approach regular supervision meetings. One thing which is really easy for any manager to do and makes me very happy, as you'll know, Rob, because it comes under the heading of it has an element of de-siloing fundraising departments in which, as you'll know from previous conversations, I'm very passionate about. But any supervision you have with a member of staff as a manager, they're very often just talking about what you've done, what you're going to be doing, and a bit of an assessment, which can be a bit bland. But if you make those supervisions, if you include in an early supervision, asking somebody about where they want to be in the next few years. Now, often if you ask somebody that and you say, where do you want to be in three years time? People feel duty bound to say, well, here in a more senior role and you get nothing from it. But I find if you say to somebody, where do you think you might like to be in five or 10 years time? Because they don't feel so constrained about what they're meant to say, because it feels far enough away that they can be honest you'll often get something really useful from somebody about maybe they want to be a head of department or a head of fundraising, or, and I'll just say as an aside, they may say that I just want to be doing my job really well. And that's fine because not everybody wants to be promoted and actually not promoting people can be a really good way of retaining them. You just need to ask them if they want the promotion or not, rather than them feeling forced into it. But in terms of asking them where they want to be, that means that you can suddenly make these supervisions into an incredible way of keeping the person, making them a better fundraising, making them better for the organisation and improving the whole department. So if somebody says to you, in 10 years' time, I think I'd like to be a head of fundraising and they're, say, a trust fundraiser at the moment, you can actually take that on as a line manager and say, well, okay, let's make that happen together. How can we support you? Because what you don't want is that person thinking, well, if I want to diversify my fundraising experience, I have to move to another organisation and change into a different funding stream. So you could actually say to them, well, let's work it back. If you want to be a head of fundraising in, in 10 years' time, then maybe you want to be a head of department in eight years and then a more senior fundraiser in five. But as part of that, you want to get a wider range of experience in fundraising. So why don't we sit you in some of the other departments for one day a week? And the beauty of that is it means that you can look at your whole fundraising department as a whole and work out of your different income streams, what are the things that people in that income stream are best at and what do they maybe need a bit of help on? And then once you've done that across your whole fundraising department, you can normally then match up different income streams with each other to upskill one another. So arguably you could say that you could put the 
trust person with an individual giving person because trusts know all the minutiae of an organization which and big projects that are coming up and the difference they'll make which can feed in really well to ig campaigns that are coming up so that intel can be really useful for ig ig are incredibly good at having tested out different types of wording that can be used in cold mailings work out which way of expressing the organization and the outcomes of the organization can really work and, and pull people in on that cold mailing and that can work really well particularly for small trust campaigns of how to get that better hit so use that all that intel from the direct marketing team and the individual giving team and also then start using their strategies about maybe testing three different types of letter to a to a small trust cold mailing and then seeing what comes back so in that equation, everybody wins because your trust person who maybe would have wanted to leave to get the diversity of experience knows they can get that internally and also feels really looked after because the most amazing thing is your employer trying to say, let's help you move on to a more senior job later on and, and you feel really valued. But your fundraising team as a whole, it starts everybody learning from each other. And it de-silos. It means that when somebody is off sick, maybe somebody can step into their role because they understand it more. But everybody starts getting training from each other without any expenditure whatsoever. They know what each other are about. And you just improve everybody's way of working by de-siloing. And you will retain those staff because they're not having to go on an external training course. They're not having to move roles. They're getting that experience in-house. Yes, I know the certain organisations I've had the privilege of working with that are much better than others that they... It's not always easy and straightforward to put the effort in to making these things possible, but when they do do it, it absolutely pays them back for the kinds of reasons you've said. There's one particular thing I also wanted to get your take on, and our listeners might know that I'm a big fan of books by Chip and Dan Heath, the Heath brothers, because I talk about the book called Switch and Made to Stick. And another of my favorites is called The Power of Moments. That was the book that inspired me to create this concept that I teach on to fundraisers called Wow Moments. How could you create these special moments for our supporters? And indeed, you could argue these special moments for our staff. I remember in The Power of Moments, an especially striking story of, I think it was John Deere, the tractor company in Asia that was really struggling initially in recruiting particularly a certain type of person with certain skills and engineering experience and so on and retaining them because they were so in demand by lots of companies in that part of the world. And the Heath brothers tell the story of John Deere, the company really embraced the notion that they had to do better. They couldn't afford not to really go above and beyond in turning that around, the experience people got when they started working at John Deere. And I wonder what your take is on how charities in the UK or anywhere can be more holistic and, and try harder from earlier on. Interestingly, with retention, I think a lot of employers see it as something that starts on the first day somebody starts in post or even that starts when they finish their probation. But as a recruiter, you're always taught that the most risky part of any recruitment process is just after somebody's accepted the role because they can be offered other jobs, they can be offered more salary by the employer they're with. So actually retention starts from the moment that person accepts the role in your organisation. And Vanessa Longley at Young Minds is one of the best I know in terms of retaining staff. And one of the things she does when the, when the new staff member accepts, she sends them a really lovely handwritten note, a really personalised handwritten note, a notebook, a pen and a Young Minds mug and every single person I spoke to in that team 
mentioned that mug and that notebook they had had because it was completely unexpected. It was from the director and they just said it really meant a lot. I mean, as I say, with many of these things, the cost isn't particularly high, but it makes a big difference. And in that period, as I say, from the time they accept, you're not asking them to do any work, but you're just making sure that you give them those moments like the mug turning up, but also just stay in touch with them about letting them know what's going to be happening on their first day, what the plan is for their first couple of weeks, because people are usually terrified in that time. Nobody knows quite what's coming. It's that fear of the unknown. And just a little bit of communication makes a big difference and basically ensures that that person's going to turn up on day one. And then, yes, you have to make the first couple of weeks amazing to, to retain them and then carry on retaining them for the rest of their time with you. But if they don't even turn up on day one, you can't retain them because they're not there. So making those key moments and then as fundraisers, I've known of various organizations who have done simple things like somebody's done a really good piece of work and it doesn't have to be a big check coming in. And if they can't afford to give, give them a thing, they might just let them take the afternoon off. And those sorts of moments that you can give somebody that, as I say, don't cost anything, have a massive impact because they're things people can talk about. And I think in fundraising, this is really important because everyone loves to be able to reflect the fact they're good at their job. But none of us are going to sit there in a pub with our friends or something like that and just say, hey, I got told I was amazing at work today. But if you're being given half a day off or you're being sent something in the post or you're being given a, a small, doesn't have to be a gift, but just something or a handwritten letter, that's the kind of thing that you might bring up with somebody and tell them that you got it. And then they'll ask you why. And you can tell them it's because you did a really good job. And as a recruiter, I know that very often when people are deciding on which job to go for or whether to stay in their job, there is often one key influencer in their life. And it might be a partner, it might be a family member, it might be a parent, it might be a good friend, who is the person that they're always telling about their bad bits about their job. And all jobs have bad bits, but they're the ones that they're, they're sort of talking to. And they're the ones that are saying to them, you're worth more than this. You should think about moving on. They don't appreciate you. But if that same person has also heard about the letter you got, about the mug you got, about the fact you are really appreciated, they're going to be saying, stay there. They're going to be saying, what a wonderful place you work at. They're going to be saying, I wish I could work there too. And therefore, not only have you moved the likelihood of that person suggesting that they leave and they're not appreciated, there's every chance that that other people might be a fundraiser who might want to work there, or the person might be a potential supporter and end up leaving a legacy. But all of these things mean that you can, with very, very low impact and low cost, you can keep those people and not only keep the people you've got, but actually make yourself an employer of choice where people start sending you their CVs and getting in touch with you saying, I wonder if you've got any jobs coming up. And therefore that reduces your recruitment costs in the future and starts you with a pool of people who are clamoring to work with you as well as people who you have already who will stay. Yeah, I really love this stuff because on the one hand, you could hear this and think, what, a mug, a, a notebook, or even... Half a day off, that's a bit of a gimmick, isn't it? And yet, I think there's a massive difference between having the idea and it not being so astonishing and actually following through and doing it and what it feels like to be on the receiving end of that. I'm reminded of a brilliant fundraiser called Tommy from a medical research charity who during the summer of the lockdown of 2020 sent out to his community supporters a tea bag and a sachet of coffee and a handwritten note saying hope you're okay I'd love a catch-up and when I heard that on the one hand I thought 
bit of a gimmick, isn't it? But the thing that really struck me was, A, Tommy sent that to 20 community supporters. 15 of them, 75%, got back to him and met him for a virtual coffee. But the key thing that stuck in my head was he said, I was taken aback by how touched people were. I mean, on the one hand, it's just a tea bag. But the, the, what we could sometimes forget is to be receiving that in the context of the summer of 2020, when there's bills coming in and all the other stress, and someone doesn't just have the idea, but they follow through and are meet, you know, they write a card where they genuinely mean it, that they'd love to chat to you rather than ask for something. Then it moves beyond gimmick to, oh, someone did a lovely thing for me. And I, I think you could do the mug technique badly and it would be, oh, yeah, I got given a gimmicky thing today. But yeah. if, you, if you mean it and it's congruent and it's part of your overall culture that you as a team leader or a manager, you genuinely care, I totally get why those people at that charity pool fed that back to you. It's just how actually it was a mini wow. And there's one other little example that occurs to me. There's a brilliant fundraiser who I've known for years. Who's, she's a member of our club called Rupa Day. And uh, about six months ago, during our virtual breakfast club, she did a little mini talk. And we would, because we were talking about wow moments in the context of how can you create just a, a bit of surprise and delight beyond what people would expect in the context of donors and fundraisers. And Rupa Day shared with our Breakfast Club audience that she also has really followed through with that in how she looks after her team. How can I create something a bit different, a bit going the extra mile? It doesn't have to break the bank, but just something they wouldn't necessarily expect. And, and she did several things, but the one she told our Breakfast Club was on the 12-month anniversary of everything locking down. So I guess this must have been March 2021. Hmm. She organized a special team meeting and in advance, she sent them a lovely little cocktail making kit, not just anyone, but a cocktail from Dishoom. And if you've ever heard of that, it's not just any old you know, bottle of gin. Dishoom is this lovely, fancy shishi restaurant. And she sent that to the team with a note saying to be open in the meeting. Sure. Uh, and then uh, it was a surprise. And in the meeting, she said from her heart, she just couldn't have made it through that year without a team like they were. And she genuinely meant just how much she appreciated each and every one of them, not only for their technical skill and their fundraising effort and so on, but also just how hard each and every one of them had worked to help her personally and to help teammates as a whole and for the bigger picture of the cause they serve. And she said that and she meant it. She didn't overdo it with the words, but she, she said it like she meant it and said, right, we're not going to talk any work from now on. Can you open your box now? Let's enjoy a cocktail on me. I imagine if anyone didn't drink, Rupert Day was smart enough to think of, you know, something to send them. But it's one thing to think this idea. And the key thing I take from the wow moments process is anyone can have these ideas, but for the first 10 years of my career, I, I, quote, left these ideas on the flip chart because there was always a reasonable reason not to take the risk. Yeah. And what I loved about Rupert Day over her career, she's got again and again rewarded for taking the risk and going the extra mile to help mm. her team feel appreciated, feel like family, feel safe. Well, that's, I think the thing I love most about helping people to do this is in most of the cases, people love it. It's that giving a gift kind of feeling and 
people almost miss the fact it's quite nice to watch sometimes because they don't really realize that they're getting so much out of doing it themselves and not just because it stops them having to recruit members of their team so often because they're keeping them but it feels really good to do all these kind of bits of recognition or, or giving some nice things every now and again so actually they're retaining themselves at the same time by doing these things and they're making themselves enjoy their jobs more and more likely to stay so it's sort of this lovely self-retention piece that they don't necessarily realize they're doing but again it makes it makes a big difference and just feels great to do yeah it absolutely does and that really is consistent with whenever charities steal themselves to find the resources to do a special thankathon mm. and they manage to get three trustees to make some thank you calls or at least send some thank you cards the feedback is always not only did we get these stories of some donors who were delighted and chose to give some more money but the really interesting thing was the trustees that did it said they really enjoyed it. <laughs> when I was volunteering in a different team to do some thanking, you know, I was doing it because it was the right thing to do, but I enjoyed it as well. And it's really easy to see how in those moments when we are giving generously for the right reasons rather than as a trick or to get something in return, it meets a human need we all have and it does make us feel great. Hey, it's Rob, and I thought I'd jump in really quickly in case you'd like to get a deeper level of training and coaching support than is possible in these short podcast episodes. If so, a couple of options to think about are firstly, our Bright Spot Members Club, which is our training and inspiration site for fundraisers of all disciplines. And secondly, our two flagship mastery programs in corporate partnerships and major gift fundraising, which will start again in the autumn of 2022. But rather than have me explain them, I thought it would be most interesting if you could hear from a fundraiser named Pippa about how the Learning Club and the Corporate Mastery Programme have helped her. I've been a member of Bright Spot Members Club for a couple of years now and also attended Rock's Mastery course. It's been amazingly helpful for me all the way through. I uh, had lots of different things to, to juggle um, as I've been going and uh, I was new to, to the role a couple of years ago. So having the members club and all the resources on the members club there to refer to and to help me and to help my confidence was amazing. It's been it's been a huge source of support for me. You know, sometimes fundraising can be a bit of a lonely world, especially if you work for a small fundraising team. People have different areas of expertise. Uh, having uh, that resource to, to, to go to, to to give you inspiration and to help you out and to grow your confidence is, is huge. Um, but also having that community and the chance to meet other amazing fundraisers who are probably going through the same challenges as you um, and that you can bounce your, your ideas off is, is absolutely key. If you'd like to hear more about the Bright Spot Members Club, our corporate and major gifts mastery programmes, or our team training days, go to brightspotfundraising.co.uk forward slash services. For now, though, let's get back to my interview with Paul Knott. So supervisions, I really think, are a key part of making retention work and making it all driven by the manager being led by the input they're taking for the member of staff or even how they're helping the member of staff to think about their future career. Because often people are only thinking about the next role rather than the future, but the manager can help them with that, not only helping them think about the future and how to get there, but also maybe tapping into their own network in the sector to match them up with other people, either peers in other organisations, which not only helps upskill, but also sometimes removes that grass is always greener approach. I've sometimes seen some people who have had their first job in an incredible organisation with really good sort of staff feedback, staff retention, but because they haven't been anywhere else, they don't necessarily know how good 
they've got it at the time. And sometimes actually matching up with people in peers in other organisations makes them understand how good they have got it. And that can help with retention in itself. Also, in terms of supervisions, training is really important, but often people have just put on training courses that their managers think are appropriate, which can absolutely work. But again, it's about engaging with that individual about what they think is important to their job and not using training as something to be seen as a benefit because it's often pitched in that way of people should always be thanking for training. And that's true if it's something that is purely for the person. So if you're allowing the person to suggest something that's maybe from an extracurricular activity and you're giving them some training, that's absolutely a benefit and a perk of the job. But if it's something work-related, not so much. And on that one, be careful about the training you're doing. Work with the staff member to make it relevant. And the bright spot stuff is is some of the best I've come across. And I'm not just saying that because you're here, Rob. But also, if the manager is deciding to put them on anything, I think something which is giving them a network is more important than just sole training. So training is good, but something like, I know a lot of managers now, Rob, are actually choosing to do bright spot membership for individuals or for whole teams. And I've, you may not know this, but I've had a lot of feedback from people in the sector that that sort of thing can be incredibly beneficial to people and particularly for for maybe people who don't have such a good network because it taps them into not only training that they can take at the time they want it, but also a network of people that's, small enough that they feel they can go there with problems and things they need to know and questions they have and can again knowing that they're part of that can give them some of that sort of uh, training in-house that they might need to go elsewhere to get otherwise so I think something like bright spot membership can be really beneficial too final thing I'd like to add and I would love this to be more of a thing in the sector is encouraging all of your staff to become trustees of other organisations and giving them maybe a couple of days or more a year to be able to work on this trustee work. There are so many issues in this sector, whether it's around problems with diversity, problems with fundraising, not getting enough investment, problems with getting flexibility agreed for staff. So many of the issues that come up in the sector, I believe, would be solved or at least helped by fundraisers and other people who work in charities going on to trustee boards it's still so true in so many organizations that trustee boards are made up of well-meaning people with with huge amounts of skill but often none of whom have actually worked in a charity themselves and it makes for so many problems if you said you were running an oil company and the whole board of directors had no experience of the oil trade that would seem like a really sort of wrong-footed thing to do and nobody nobody would believe it but in charity so often trustee boards are entirely made up of people who haven't worked in the sector and that does cause a lot of problems i speak to so many people in the sector who feel that they're not experienced enough to become a trustee they look at their trustee board and think that's not me but that is precisely the reason why they should be trustees but you as a line manager if you've got staff can encourage them and let them know that it's all right for them to become trustees and i do lots of work with organizations and individuals with how to find trustee roles because it's it's easy and there are various ways you can do it you don't have to just look at adverts for trustees because actually that's often the very large organizations but it can be so fulfilling to a person. It can be so beneficial to them as a member of staff. And you buying into that and allowing them to do that partly on the charity's time 
and maybe on the condition that they feed back to, to you and their peers about what they're learning and what they're doing in that trustee role could be not only incredibly beneficial to the charity, incredibly beneficial to the staff member and your retention as a whole because they will value the fact you're, you're encouraging them to do that, but would massively benefit the sector as a whole as well. Paul, thank you ever so much for making time to share these ideas. I really appreciate not only the specific tactics that some of our listeners could try out, but also those examples you've shared, especially of, of how young minds have been doing this stuff really well. So thank you so much, Paul. I've really enjoyed our chat and I will catch up with you very soon. Great to see you, Rob. Thanks. Well, I hope you found the episode helpful. If you'd like to see a full transcript and a short summary, and a link to both episodes I've previously recorded with Paul, go to the podcast section of our website, which is brightspotfundraising.co.uk. Near the end of our conversation, one of the resources Paul mentioned that can help teams with their ongoing development is our own Brightspot Members Club, of which Paul is a long-standing member. There are now more than 350 fundraisers in our Learning and Inspiration Club, and if you'd like to find out more, go to brightspotmembersclub.co.uk forward slash join. Or if you're the manager of a team and you'd like to find out about team discounts, do just get in touch with me via our website. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd be incredibly grateful if you'd take a moment to share it on with your colleagues or on social media so that we can help as many good causes as possible during these tough times. You can tag Paul and I on Twitter at at Paul Consulting and at Woods underscore Rob. We're both on LinkedIn and I'm also now on Instagram at at Brightspot Fundraising. Lastly, thank you for listening today. Best of luck with your fundraising and all your efforts to create a culture where your people stay doing great work for as long as possible. I look forward to sharing more Brightspot ideas and examples with you very soon.